Good morning. Let me add my welcome to Pastor Ron and invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 16. John chapter 16. We're actually going to start reading in verse 20. Last week, if you were here, Pastor Ron reminded us of the need, the call of Jesus to abide in Him. That is to find our rest, our hope, and our trust only in Him. Jesus says that to the degree that we remain in Him, we bear fruit. We are fruitful. We bear the fruit of the gospel seed that that God implants deep in our heart. We become more alive in Him and more like Him because of it. We find that our joy is made fuller and more complete as we abide in Christ. And as we turn to chapter 16 this morning, we see that our abiding in Christ is actually helped. It's helped by the Holy Spirit who abides in us. Through His indwelling, we are reminded, we're encouraged, we are helped to remain in Christ. It is the Spirit who reminds us of heaven when all hell breaks loose in our life. That was to happen to the disciples in just a few hours. Jesus' death would not only take their breath away, it would take their peace away. It would even take their hope away. It would feel like their connection to the vine had been severed. They would feel lost. Some of you feel lost right now. Maybe it's a friendship or relationship that's fallen apart. Maybe you're graduating and you don't know what your next move is. Maybe it's a job that has you doing work that's outside of your gifting. Maybe it's a child that has some learning or behavioral challenges. Or maybe it's something that you can't even articulate But you feel lost. You feel severed from the vine. And if you're not there yet, you probably will be soon. What would Jesus show us this morning about a life that feels severed and cut off from Him? That feels like it is spiraling out of control? Let's look at our text and find out. Again, John 16, beginning in verse 20. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament. But the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day, you will ask in my name. And I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father Himself loves you, because you have loved Me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? 
Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, once again we come to you, we ask you through your Holy Spirit that you might help us to see what you would have us to see about you and about us. We pray that you would do that for your glory and our good. In Christ's holy name we pray. Amen. One of the joys of being a pastor is walking alongside people when they are hurting. I had a conversation with someone recently who was convinced that God did not want her to be happy. More than sadness, she seemed to be resolved about it, determined that God was against her being happy. My first thought was to agree with her and to share with her something that someone had once told me, that that God is more interested in our holiness than He is in our happiness. And while I believe that's true, it didn't seem all that helpful at the time. So I asked her why she thought God didn't want her to be happy. She pointed to a number of difficult circumstances in her past, circumstances that felt like God was pulling the rug out from underneath her. As she recounted these circumstances, I could see why she thought that God didn't want her to be happy. She had clear expectations for how God should treat her, and He wasn't meeting them. As she reviewed the data of her life, there was only one conclusion. God didn't want her to be happy. Now, she's not alone, of course. We all have expectations for how God should relate to us, what He should do for us, and how our lives should go. But when things don't go the way we expect or believe they should, we often panic. Our hearts become conflicted as our beliefs clash with our experiences. Something has to give. For this woman, the Bible had always formed her beliefs about God. That belief was the lens in which she interpreted her experiences. But when her experiences began to clash with her beliefs, something changed. Instead of letting the Bible shape her beliefs about God, she began to let her experiences shape her belief about God. Her experiences had now become the primary lens through which she interpreted her beliefs about God. What she failed to see, what we all fail to see, is that we don't often have all the facts. We don't have a full picture. What we see is not all there is to know. It's actually ironic that I should be talking to this woman about happiness. You see, when I was a child, I was convinced my mom didn't want me to be happy. Ever. It seemed like her favorite word to me was, No. Can I do this? No. Can I eat this? No. Can I wear this? No. And the only time she said yes were to questions like, Do I have to go to the dentist? Yes. Do I have to go to bed now? Yes. Do I have to do my homework now? Yes. It was clear to me that her life's work was bent on making sure that I didn't have fun or was happy. But you know what I realized when I became a parent? I realized that her no and her yes actually had a deeper goal. It was hidden to me as a child, but is so clear to me now as a parent. The deeper goal was for me to be healthy, for me to be wise, for me to be mature. It was so I could be a loving husband one day, 
so I could be a caring father, so I could even be a pastor. I didn't know it at the time, but my mom had deeper purposes that I couldn't see. God had deeper purposes that the disciples couldn't see either. Up until now, Jesus had talked of his mission figuratively. He says as much in verse 25. He uses all kinds of figures of speech to help the disciples understand. He did that because they couldn't handle the plain truth. It was too disturbing. There was no room in their theology for a crucified Messiah to usher in the kingdom of God. There was no belief strong enough to support a salvation that was um, to come from a cross. But one day they would understand. They would see it plainly after the resurrection. Jesus wouldn't have to speak cryptically. He would be able to speak plainly because they would understand. But that day had not come yet. Jesus knows that his death will unsettle them. They're going to feel lost and disconnected from him. Even now, we who live on this side of the cross can still feel lost. There are times when we feel severed from the vine. We feel cut off. Jesus gives us three promises so that we will know that we have not been cut off. That there are deeper purposes and goals that are at work in our life. And we are to cling to these promises when we experience tribulation in this world. The first is that Jesus promises a sorrow overcome. There are only a few hours left before Jesus will be arrested, mocked, tortured, and crucified. Jesus prepares them for the fallout. He tells them in verse 20, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. To be sure, the death of Jesus will bring about a deep grief. They will grieve not only the loss of a friend and a shepherd, they will also grieve the loss of hope. You see, in their mind, in their context, it will mean the end of the blind seeing, the deaf hearing, the lame walking, the possessed set free, and the dead even being raised. If Jesus is not here... There is no hope for us or for the world. What's more, Jesus says that the world will rejoice when he's gone. They will celebrate his death. It's hard enough to grieve a lost loved one, isn't it? To be in a place with strangers who are unaware of your grief. To wish that the world would stop so that you could grieve. And yet how hard would it be if an entire city were rejoicing that your loved one, your light, was gone? This would have been a double blow. How could they ever recover from that? Life would never be the same for them or for anyone else. And we wonder the same thing when we experience loss. How can we possibly recover? How can life go on? The burden of our grief weighs so heavy on us. It feels like the end of the story. But it's not the end of the story. Not by a long shot. Jesus says in the rest of verse 20, your sorrow will turn into joy. In saying this, Jesus isn't just talking about replacing their sorrow. He's talking about transforming their sorrows. Turning them inside out. How could that possibly happen? It's as if Jesus anticipates the question and gives us an example. In verse 21, Jesus uses childbirth as an illustration of this transformative reality. 
He says, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. Now, he's not saying that that a woman who gives birth doesn't remember the pain of childbirth. We know that for certain. What he's saying is that the joy of having a child pushes the pain back into the background. One of my favorite TV shows is the British drama called The Midwife. Denise asked me to watch that with her initially, and I reluctantly agreed. I wondered how a show about women giving birth could possibly be interesting. And yet it didn't take long for me to answer that question. I was hooked. The show is superbly written. The characters are believable. And and at times the stories are very redemptive. For those of you who haven't seen the show, it's about a group of midwives who care for the poor of Poplar in East London. Set in the late 50s and early 60s, the midwives are made up of Anglican nuns and nurses who help uh, help mothers deliver their babies. As the mothers get closer to delivery, they tell the midwives that they can't push anymore. The pain of labor has left them exhausted. And the midwives calmly reassure the mothers that they can do it and that it will all be over soon. And of course, they find the strength to deliver. And as the baby is born and given to the mothers, the look on their faces tell the story. The painful and exhausted grimaces are usually replaced with warm, glowing ones. Their pain has been transformed into joy. The child she has been carrying inside her womb is finally here. All the discomfort of pregnancy, all the pain of labor has been pushed to the side. It has been replaced by joy as they hold their little ones. And that's exactly what happened to the disciples on Resurrection Sunday. The pain and sorrow of Jesus' death was transformed into joy when they saw Him. Tears of sadness became tears of joy. If there's anything that can transform our sorrow into joy, it is the certainty of the resurrection. I remember being overwhelmed with sadness when my dad took his last breath. And yet in the same moment, my heart was strangely flooded with joy. You see, I knew that he was no longer there. He was risen. He was alive in Christ. And don't get me wrong, my grief over his passing is still here even to this day. But it has been transformed by joy. The thought of my father alive in Christ gives me joy. Our current struggles and sorrows bear the possibilities of joy as well, whether it's a relational struggle, a financial struggle, a health struggle, or even a spiritual struggle. Our struggles can bring us new joys. We may not experience complete joy until we are with the Lord, but even now our sorrows can be transformed into deep joy. Secondly, Jesus promises a barrier overcome. There is indeed a second sorrow that we experience. It's the sorrow of our sin and the barrier it created with God. You see, because of our sin, we had no access to God. We stood justly condemned for our sin. And yet, as a hymn writer said, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. 
when Jesus took the punishment our sins deserved, He credited to our account His righteousness. He took on all our demerits while we received His merits. Through Jesus, we now have access to God in a way that we didn't have before. We now have the ability to pray in Jesus' name. We see that in verses 23 to 24. Jesus says, In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, He will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive that your joy may be full. So does that mean that we can ask for anything and expect to get it? After all, it says, Whatever you ask of the Father in my name, He will give it to you. Well, I think we instinctively know that the answer is no. Certainly our experiences have borne that out. See, when we pray in Jesus' name, there are a couple things we must remember. The first is that we're praying in His name and not our own name. Praying in Jesus' name means that we're coming on His merit and, and not our own merit. It's His righteous record that we're calling God to look at and not our own. We often quote James 5.16 The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. My question is, whose righteousness has great power? Is it the Christian's righteousness? It can't be because we have no righteousness of our own accord. Our righteousness comes from Christ. That makes our prayers are effective because of Christ's righteousness and not our own. The same is true when we come to the Lord's table. We come not like we would to a dinner party, bringing something to enhance the meal with. We come like we would to a soup kitchen, bringing nothing but our empty stomachs. The only thing of value we bring to the table is our need of it. God will not receive us on our own merit. It is only on Christ's merit that He receives us. Through No Walls Ministry, we have the privilege of helping men and women rebuild their lives in Christ Some of the men that we work with often have a criminal record. That can make finding a job pretty difficult. You see, employers are often reluctant to hire people who have a criminal record. And on their own merit, they don't stand a chance finding a job that will pay a living wage. But when they get connected to a guy like Andy Flowers, something happens. Andy contacts an employer about hiring this young man. And he assures him that this young man will be an asset to the company. Based on Andy's merit and his good name, Andy's been able to do that for a number of our men who have gotten jobs. Why? Because it's been on his merit and his good name that the employers have said yes. And I'm so grateful to those employers who've said yes. And of course, who's going to say no to Andy, right? In a way, that's how it is with us. On our own, we have no way of gaining access to God. Our sinful record separates us from God. We have no merit on our own, but through Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross, He has made a way open for us. He took the punishment our sins deserve, and what's more, He gives us His righteousness that now gives us immediate and eternal access to God. So when we pray in Jesus' name, we are invoking His merit and not our own to God. We're asking God to answer our prayer because of Christ's record and not our own. But secondly, we also pray in correspondence with Christ's character and His objectives. 
We ask for what Christ would want. Kent Hughes writes, Prayer is not a means by which we get God to do what we want. Rather, it is a means by which God does through us what He wants. As we are filled with the Holy Spirit and our hearts become more in tune with the Father's heart, we more easily and readily pray for the things that He desires for us. We submit our wills to His, knowing that we have the Father's heart through Christ. And then thirdly and finally, Jesus promises a kingdom overcome. The cloud of confusion seems to be settling in the disciples' mind. They tell Jesus in verses 29 to 30 that they are finally beginning to see things clearly. They seem confident in their belief in Jesus' knowledge and authority. They think that they have all the pieces fit together. So do we. We think we've got Jesus figured out. We think we understand how He works in and through us. And then He shows us that we still don't get it. He wounds our pride so that we remain teachable and moldable. You see, the most dangerous thing that can happen to us is to think that we've got Jesus figured out. When we do that, we operate with faulty knowledge. And you know what? That faulty knowledge will lead us to wrong conclusions every time about Him and about us. He tells them that there is yet a final sorrow. It is a sorrow inflicted by the world. They are going to experience tribulation. And growing up, that word always seemed to be synonymous with end times. And while that's certainly true, that's not what Jesus is really talking about here. The word for tribulation here is slipsis and can be translated literally as pressing together or pressure. It's the same word that's used for anguish in the example of childbirth in verse 21. Think of the pressure a baby exerts on a mother as he makes his way down the birth, can, birth canal. The pressure is intense. It's anguishing. We will feel that same kind of pressure from the world. It will seek to conform and to oppose and to oppress us because of Christ. And the world will seemingly be unopposed in its oppression. But Jesus says to them and to us, take heart. In other words, don't be so gloomy. Cheer up. Well, that seems easy for Jesus to say, and and yet that's exactly right. It's easy for him to say that because of what he says next. I have overcome the world. Now that sentiment would be tested when Jesus' body hung lifeless on the cross. It would seem the world had overcome Jesus. But any doubt would be erased by the resurrection. The rejoicing of the world at Jesus' death would become horror. Indeed, Jesus has overcome the world. He has defeated the powers of death and hell. The world is no match for Jesus. I love what D.A. Carson says about this idea of Jesus overcoming the world. He said, Jesus' death and resurrection has made the world's opposition pointless and beggarly. In other words, it's sad and useless. The decisive battle has been waged and won. The world continues in its wretched attacks, yes, but those who are in Christ share the victory that He has won. As Jesus finishes the upper room discourse here in chapter 16, He reminds the disciples that this has all been to prepare them, to help them know what was to come so they wouldn't be surprised. But more than that, He says these things 
so that they will experience peace in the midst of what is to come. He says that this peace can only come through Him. That peace assures us that Jesus was enough for God. His payment for our sins was sufficient and complete. There was no judgment left to pay. Your sin and mine have been fully paid. And that same peace assures us that Jesus is also enough for us. He is all we need and as we remain in Him, we will know His peace more and more. He has also given us His Spirit as our needed helper. As the Holy Spirit abides in us, we are empowered to abide in Christ. He keeps us connected to the vine when we feel severed in our life. I wonder if you know His peace this morning. Are you consumed by your sorrow? Or are you looking to Him to transform your sorrows into joy? Do you feel like your prayers aren't being answered? Let me ask you, whose merit are you coming to the Father with? Your own or Christ? Have you lost heart of the tribulations of this world? Do you find that your strength and your resolve are fading? Hear Jesus' words again. Take heart. For I have overcome the world. And all God's people said, Amen. Let's pray. Well, Father, we are so thankful for this truth. That you have not only overcome the world, but you have overcome the world in us. When we feel lost and cut off from you, would you remind us of the truth that we belong to you. We are your children, secure because of Christ. We pray this in his holy name. Amen.